I, this is strange. It's almost, I think, three months exactly since I last preached at, preached at a screen to you guys. And now it's weird to have you here. This is what I've dreamed about for months. So, so we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has been preaching about the nature of his kingdom. What is his kingdom like? And not just what is his kingdom like, what are his people like? And tonight's the last installment of this series of walking through the heart of Jesus' kingdom and what his citizens would look like. And one of the primary attitudes that repeatedly was highlighted throughout this whole sermon series is that those who are followers of Jesus deeply know that they need the mercy of God. They deeply feel their need for God, and therefore, as they receive mercy— Mercy, they are now conduits of his mercy to other people. And so if you want to characterize what a Christian is like, it's, it's those who know that need, they need mercy from God and that that mercy then flows through them to other people. And the ideal would be is if we've been taking these truths to heart, these sermons to heart and living them out, that we could just look at our church and say, hey, if you want to know what the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain looks like, just look at all people's church. Because if you look at us long enough and the way we relate with each other, you'll get a good glimpse of the kingdom of God and what Jesus' kingdom is like, what a citizen sh should look like. That would be the goal. That would be the hope, is that if you got close enough to my life and you got to see all the dirt and you got to see everything uh, behind closed doors, that you would say, you know what? I can tell that even though imperfectly, the way Sam lives is a, a picture of what Jesus is like and what his kingdom is all about, that my values would be what Jesus valued. Last week, Pastor Ross preached a banger, and did you guys just love how he was able to, we were able to share that, um, what is that called? Pork pavilion, with just this random family that was just down with sharing it. And Ross was just able to preach the gospel, and they just listened, and then Ross got like share his contact with them and talk with them. Isn't that so cool? I was so, um, I was having a pity party. Um, I, I um, was meeting with a, a couple, and uh, Joel and Carly, and I was riding in the car with them on the way to the, the gathering, and I heard that we had to share it with this couple, this family. And I was just like, just, just complaining to God, griping. I was like, God, why are you doing this to us? Don't you want us to have our own space? And the Lord's like, Sam, Sam, shh. I got this. I want people to hear my word. I love that God does things that we would totally think that would be against his, his uh, strategy and just foolish, and yet the Lord shows how wise he is. And now we're here, because we were going to meet an MLK, and now God has us here. I don't know why we're here, but he has plans for us. Why am I always strange? Okay, Pastor Ross preached this message last week, and he showed that what is on the inside, the root that is deep inside our souls, will ultimately manifest and grow into fruit. And if you want to know what's in the inside, you just look on the outside. If you, have good, if you have a good tree, good trees produce good fruit. And if you have a bad tree on the inside, the bad fruit will be evident or no fruit. I actually found this quote really helpful. It's going to be on the screen. It's by, screen. It's called a guy, uh, by a pastor named Philip Riken. And I thought this was so helpful to kind of get at some of what um, Ross was saying. What should we say then when we get caught saying or doing something evil? What is the righteous response when we come out with a swear word or when we say something rude or when we have an angry outburst at home? What we ought to say is something like this. You know, that really is what I'm like. I'm just embarrassed because usually I'm better at hiding it. 
I think it's so spot on because what is on the inside ultimately comes on the outside and nothing on the outside can make something come out if it's not already in there. No one can make you angry. They just do certain things that reveal the anger, the sinful anger that may be already there. No one can make you lust. They can just put you in a position where the lust comes out of the soul. And so the roots on the inside will grow into the fruits on the outside. That's how I sum up Ross's message. So now we're going to get to our passage today. And we're going to see that whatever is on the inside will ultimately come on the outside when they face trials, great trials, great floods. So Jesus is going to expand further from this fruit to root kind of analogy, tree and fruit, to now talking about houses and floods and foundations. And basically how you stand in the day of testing will show what's truly on the inside or actually what's underneath you, to be more specific. So now let's look at verse 46. Let's jump into the passage. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you, or not do what I tell you? Where does this question come from? Because if you look at the flow of thought, Jesus seems to just bring this question out of nowhere. It's like, no one's asking this question right now, so what is Jesus doing with this question? Well, my sense is that because Jesus is the creator, he knows the hearts of man better than man knows, he knows the natural inclination of how the human heart would wrongfully respond to Jesus' sermon. He can anticipate, and he's preemptively answering an issue that is going to happen in their hearts. What does he know? Well, he knows this, that the tendency of man, of many at least, will be to hear Jesus' words, give lip service to him, but not do a single thing about it. They may say stuff like, oh, wow, Jesus, your kingdom is awesome. I, I want some of that. Sign me up for that. Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, I love what you are about. And yet, it's the difference between a fan sitting and watching a game at home on his couch versus a player. Right? The player gives his whole life to the craft, gives his whole life where he lives, how he eats, how he spends his free time, he or she their free time, everything about their life is around making them be successful and their team being successful. They have their tons of skin in the game. If they lose, they feel it. Everyone knows it. Contrastly, the person who's at home watching on a couch, they may wear the jersey, but their team's down. They could quickly take it off quietly and be like, oh, I don't know what's going on right there. Right? They, they, they may say stuff like, we are the champions, and, and they'll own things. Right? They, 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 they may get, be very invested into the team, but ultimately, they have real no skin in the, in the game. If the team loses, they may just be emotionally down or lose some money in a bet, but ultimately, their life can still go on. See, Jesus knows that there's going to be a lot of people who want the benefits of the team without the sacrifice of the team. They want the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And Jesus anticipates that the Jews listening, they're going to want a hero king that's going to make all their dreams come true, that they're going to champion. Hosanna! Hosanna the highest! Yes, you're going to make our dreams come true. I'm all about you if you're going to be all about me. But what they don't realize, many of them at least, is that Jesus has his own agenda. And he is about his own kingdom. And Jesus is preemptively anticipating this, and he's pushing against that and calling them out. 
So Jesus says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Notice that the, the word Lord is repeated twice for emphasis. They're, the people aren't being like, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, but Lord, Lord, it's, a, it's an emphatic, it's an it's a, uh, excited, it's a, I'm committed to this. But what does it mean that he is Lord? Because you hear the word Lord thrown out a lot in our culture, especially at award shows. Like everybody, Jesus is everybody's Lord. But if you could just take this verse and flip it, it kind of breaks down what it means. So take this verse, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, and just reverse it. So it's this. Those who call Jesus Lord do what he says. You follow me? That's, you can just flip it. Those who call Jesus Lord do what he tells them. So for Jesus to be your Lord of your life means you do what he says. There is definitely more to that. But it's definitely not less than that. For many, though, in our culture and many times in my life, especially growing up in the South, being a good church boy till I was 15, Jesus as Lord is like an honorary title, kind of like the Queen of England, right? The Queen of England is a monarch, but she's not really a queen. I mean, she, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend you guys. My wife loves all things British culture, and she loves the crown and everything about it, right? But really, she has no weight or the big A word, authority, over any Brit's life. People may bow to her. People may pay homage to her. God save the queen, right? Everybody loves the queen. And yet, she has no authority over the average Brit's life. She's not actually a queen in that sense. But Jesus being Lord is not an honorary title. It's not something you just throw up or hashtag. It is a reality. For Jesus to be Lord means that he is literally the king of your life. He's the boss of your life. He's the ruler of your life. It means that every decision, every purchase, every dream is all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It has been famously proclaimed by many preachers this. And I'm going to say this a few times throughout the sermon. It's not original to me, but it's pretty simple. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We're going to go over that a little bit more. So according to Jesus, if you acknowledge him as Lord, then you must submit to his way. And what did I say in the very beginning of the sermon that the big emphasis throughout the sermon on the plain is? What is Jesus' way most characterized by? Mercy. Thank you. Yes. Mercy. Mercy, especially to those who wrong you. And so if you say Jesus is Lord, that means you do what he says. And if you do what he says and, how, and, and imitate how he lives, that means you live a life of loving enemies. Let's get this out of, the, out of our system that being like Jesus or following Jesus is just doing nice things. Not going to those movies or not wearing that clo clothing or not listening to that music or whatever it is. Being like Jesus, fundamentally, if you get the heart of it, is being like the loving, crucified Messiah who loves those who wrong him. So if you want to ask yourself, if you know Jesus is your Lord, the question is, do you love your enemies? like Jesus loves his enemies. See, that changes the game, doesn't it? It becomes a lot more than, oh, are you nice? Do you smile at people? Do you not do these things? But it's actually, 
primarily not defining your life on what you don't do, but what you do do. Not by withholding from certain things, which that's important. Yes, it is important. Jesus calls us to holiness. But it's primarily about how you engage the evil that is thrown upon you. That changes everything about Christianity. So this means that you cannot say that Jesus is your Lord if you are unwilling to love those who have wronged you. quiet in here. Now, Jesus is going to continue to show us what it looks like to do what he says and what a life looks like who truly relates to him as the Lord. Look at verse 47 with me. We're going to keep, we spent a long time in 46. We're going to speed it up. Verse 47. We're going to talk about the three verbs of discipleship. Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word, words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Now, we'll stop right there. There are three verbs here, taking you back to grammar class, three verbs here that embody the Christian life. Can you see them? Three verbs. They're actually participles, but we won't get into that. Three verbs. You see them? Come, hear, do. Come, hear, do. These three words that Jesus highlights in this this passage, really embody much of the Christian life. Come to Jesus. Hear Jesus. And do what Jesus says. Come to Jesus, hear Jesus, and do what he says. All these words are actually in the present tense. Okay, still in grammar school. They're in the present tense. Which, what does that mean? Because it's in the present tense, it indicates that it's a continual reality. You are constantly coming to Jesus. You are constantly hearing from Jesus. You are constantly following and obeying Jesus and doing what he says. This is an ongoing reality. This is normal Christian life. This is, these three verbs are the pattern and the norm for the Christian life. And notice I said the pattern and norm. I did not say this, these are the three verbs that embody radical Christians. No, Normal Christianity is radical. This is the Christian life. Let's break down these three actions. Number one, we come to Jesus. We daily come to Jesus, adoring him, loving him, responding to his love, submitting to him. Again, it's a living and dynamic relationship with the real person. And so, if you ever get that famous question, hey, when did you give your life to Jesus? You know what you should say? This morning. This morning. Actually, last minute, because someone sinned against me and I got so mad at them, I gave my life to Jesus again. And this is not a salvation. You're getting saved every moment. It's a resubmitting your soul, your heart to him as king and as a lover. If someone asks you, when did you first give your life to Jesus? Then you can say, oh, it was this day or this season, or I'm not really sure. And then we can have a conversation. So daily receive Jesus' love, his forgiveness, his fellowship, and his lordship. Number two, we hear Jesus. Every day we hear Jesus. As we come to him, we come to him, and we open his word, and we hear from him. We look for him in these pages. We ask him to shape our thinking, our living, the way we view ourselves. We let these words shape our hearts and our minds. 
And this also includes responding to the word. See, this is a dialogue, right? We hear from him and we have his ear. And as we receive his word, we respond back in prayer. And that's where prayer no longer becomes a monologue, it's a dialogue. And number three, we do what Jesus says. After hearing Jesus and responding in prayer, we respond in obedience. We respond in following him. Notice, Jesus didn't say, just come to me and hear me. That's it. No. He says, do what I say. Here, look at the words of Jesus. He says, hear my words and does them. Christianity doesn't stop at merely hearing sermons, reading books, memorizing scripture even. But it has to go full circle. In America, especially, we value information transfer. We value learning. And we can really feel good about ourselves because we, uh, we got our little Bible, Bible plan right here. We check it off. Look at me, Jesus. I'm a good Christian. I'm better than everyone else. They're so undisciplined and lazy. Look at me. I'm good at this, right? Of course, none of you say that, but sometimes we can feel that. Or maybe I'm the only one. And we read books. And we listen to sermons and we feel like we accomplished something. We've accomplished nothing unless our hearts have actually responded to the words. In fact, we're just heaping up judgment on ourselves and making it harder to enter the kingdom of heaven. If all you do is listen and you never do anything about it. If you read this Bible at all carefully, you will see very quickly that the Bible has no category for a faithful Christian who listens and does not do. They do not exist. There is no such thing as a Christian who's a carnal Christian. Oh, that's just a, they're, they're bless their heart. They're a good Christian. They just don't do anything that Jesus says. But, but God loves them, right? Yeah, he, he, he does certainly love them, but that does not mean they're right with him. There's no category in the Bible for merely hearing and not doing. The only category of those people are those who are ultimately going to be rejected on the last day. To be a Christian is to have Jesus as Lord, and that means you do what he says. So maybe you're a visitor or maybe you have a bad taste in your mouth because you've seen hypocritical Christians. Christians, And you know what? It's very likely those Christians were those who heard the word and maybe it came to Jesus, but they never did the word. They never followed him. So they never embodied Jesus' life, his aroma, his heart of mercy. And so all you got from them was legalism, laws, judgment, condemnation. And you didn't see the mercy flowing through them because they don't even know that they need mercy themselves. So Jesus is now going to give us two pictures about two people. Two pictures about two people being represented by two houses. Could I say that more simply? Two houses represent two people. And as we press in, the, the question you should be wondering is, what kind of house am I? Which house am I? First house, the house built on a rock. Look at verse 48, if you will. He is like a man, so Jesus is breaking down what he said before. This, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Remember to keep 47 in mind. Jesus is showing us what the person who comes to Jesus, hears him, and does what he says will actually look like. Here are two key phrases to really dig into. Pun not intended. Dug deep. It's one. That was intended, I promise Laid the, rock, laid the foundation on the rock. Those are two phrases I want to hone in. Dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. The picture is when you get a foundation, you get a, uh, when you build a house, you got to have a foundation first to build the house on, right? And there's a top layer, top soil that you have to work under 
and get to the bottom until you hit a rock foundation, a solid foundation. Now, I don't understand all the, the dimensions of uh, architecture and how you do that. I don't even know if I use the right word. I'm just trying to sound smart. Dimensions of architecture, right? It's probably not the right thing. Um, I don't even understand how that works. But I do know that you could build on just ground, and that's a bad trouble the moment you have a flood. But how do you dig deep, right? You dig deep, it takes lots of work. It takes lots of time. So the picture is the Christian who's the first house is one who has taken their time to work their heart into the shape of Christ. They've done the hard work of digging out the bad roots. They've done the work of repenting about all that junk and dealing with our past so that we can be shaped around the way of Jesus. But this hard work is not work like you're earning approval. Remember, Christians don't earn approval. Jesus already earned our approval. We work from approval. This is working because we've already been accepted to live out what Jesus has already done. We're not trying to get Jesus to like us. He already does. He already made the way. We're already pure before him. This kind of work I'm talking about is the hard work that is an, that's the evidence of someone who's truly received the mercy of God. So how do you dig deep and lay a solid foundation on the rock? Well, you come to Jesus daily, and you daily listen to him, like we said, and you daily do what he hear. Here, you daily do what you hear. And over time, as you do this monotonously, day after day, what happens is your roots go deeper. You dig deeper into the ground, and your heart becomes more like the heart of Jesus. And so you start to intuitively do what Jesus would do in every situation. You start to love what he loves. You start to hate what he hates. You, you like what he likes. You become what he's about. And what's the result of a lifetime of doing that? The next part of the verse. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, let's talk about floods for a minute, and then we're going to get back into what happens when floods hit houses. But floods in the Bible often represent judgment, the biggest flood being in the days of Noah. But in this passage, as well as others, teach that we daily have judgments in our life, daily have trials is a better word, daily have trials in our life, and periodically in our life, we have huge crises in our life. And then all of us, one day, will have a huge flood in our life where we face God naked and bare before him on the last day. The final judgment. This flood that Jesus is alluding to, I believe he's talking about daily floods in our life, but more ultimately, the ultimate flood. The flood that's going to judge the entire world and is going to separate people from if they were with him or if they were against him. If they had foundations built on the rock or if they had foundations built on themselves. Notice the language. The stream broke against the house and could not shake it. Why? Well, it says because it had been well built. See, underneath the house, underneath the naked eye, was a foundation that was super deep and built on a rock. A rock that cannot be shaken, cannot roll. In other words, Jesus is Lord over that kind of house. And when Jesus is Lord of the house, your house will not move. I love this language, could not shake it. To true Christians, listen, this is is important, are unshakable. True Christians are unshakable. Now, that does not mean you may not creak. You may creak. You may bend. You may struggle when the storm comes. 
but you will be held fast. Better put, he will hold you fast. He will keep you in his arms. He will hold on to you in those days. Even if you get to the point, the breaking point that you feel like you've got to give up, Jesus will hold on to you if you have your foundation in him. Now let's talk about the second house, the house without a foundation. Verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them, what's the them he's talking about? Does not do what? His words. Does not do Jesus's words. Good, good. Is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. So the second house heard Jesus's words and did not put them into practice. The thing about the second house is it probably looked pretty great. It was probably built fast. They're like, man, you build houses fast, right? You can't see the foundation from the outside. It could look really good, really sleek, really Christian, really holy, but it lacked true depth and foundation. The work was not put into it. They didn't shape their whole life and heart around Jesus. So it looks great until the waters come. And believe me, the waters will come. The waters always do come. And what does the text say happens when the waters come? Immediately, it falls. Immediately. When your foundation is off, everything is off. There's a famous Bible scholar and pastor named John Calvin. He says this quote that's on the screen. The general meaning of the passage is that true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to the trial. So you may fool me. I'm not God. I can't see your heart. I can see your fruit. But true faith is not revealed unless it's tested under a great trial. So when the big trial comes, that's what's really inside is exposed. What you truly love is displayed, and who you really serve is made clear. So just like a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad tree bears bad fruit, a bad foundation will be exposed in the moment of trial, while a strong foundation will stand fast. I didn't know I was truly a Christian until I was 21, even though I became a Christian when I was 15. See, because when I was 21, I lost the quote-unquote love of my life at that moment. And my response in that moment was, said Job, I said, um, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Lord, blessed be your name. And I worship God. And there's a long story to that. A lot of you guys have heard that story. But I didn't know I truly was. And I remember that night in my closet. It was a large closet. I'm not like, you know, Harry Potter style, but it's a large closet. And I remember so sad, and it was so surreal. I felt like my heart was ripped out. And I didn't believe it was, it was reality. And yet I was so happy. I was like, I'm real. I really am a Christian. You really are everything to me. So you don't really know what's inside unless what means the most to you is ripped from your hands. And Jesus continues these illustrations that he already started with the fruit and the root. But talking with Scott Hubbard earlier this week, he, he brought a really great example. See, Jesus is actually expanding on this fruit and root concept by saying this. You can actually fake good fruit for a season, maybe a long season. You could tape and staple good fruit on your tree, 
If you've been around the church long enough, you know how to sound Christian and act Christian. You know if people are watching how to respond in a way that looks like Jesus. But over time, your foundation will be exposed in great trial because you can't fake it when it's a real trial. When it's a real trial and your idols are tested and what you love most is taken, the real you will come out. And that is why we can see people in our churches that we've baptized, walk with us for a season, they're full of joy, but then the trial comes. And what was truly there is exposed. And then we're in a season where we're trying to pursue their heart and call them to trust Jesus and hope in him again. And those are very, very sad times when we have to see that. Now, I want to make a quick note, a Greek grammar note. I want to be a nerd for a second because it's helpful to understand. The verbs in this second describing this second house are in the aorist tense. And the aorist is something that happened in the past typically and it's completed. Now, why am I telling you that? Is because the verbs hears and do's describes the second house. Remember, the first house, it was all described in what tense? Present, which means it's an ongoing daily reality of coming to Jesus, hearing from Jesus, doing what he says. But for the second house, it's in the aorist tense, which means it's past. They, they have an understanding about the Christian life that it's something that happened one time. I prayed a prayer. I went to that camp. I gave the money. I shared the gospel. Everything in the past, in one point, they did it, done it, good, fire insurance. Thank you, Jesus. See you later. And yet, this is not the house that stands. These people think it happened. But actually, the Christian life is happening. It's a journey. It's not something that just happened once. It happened once, and it happens every day. Now, why does Jesus say, and the ruin of that house was great? What is so terrible? Well, he's not saying great like, make America great. Like, it's not that kind of great. It's, it's greatly terrible. Why is it so terrible? Jesus is not here talking about atheists. Hear me. The second house is not talking about atheists who want nothing to do with Jesus. If you look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, these are Christian people. These are people who call Jesus what? Lord. Atheists don't do that. These are churchy people who know the right thing to say. And in fact, according to Matthew 7, they may be even doing miracles. That is why it's so terrible. They were so close to Christ and yet so far. So close but a million miles away. It's like someone crawling the desert for water and dying of thirst and eventually dies of dehydration when right around the corner there was an oasis, a spring of life right there for them. Week in and week out, hearing the gospel, hearing a preacher preach, hearing their parents read their Bible or whatever it is, and always thinking, well, that's not for me. Or, oh, I hope Susie heard that message, right? It's always for someone else but not for them. Everyone needs mercy but them. What a terrible tragedy. For someone who grew up around the church, called Jesus as Lord, and yet on that final day of judgment, they will hear, depart from me, for I, what's the word? Never knew you. That is, that is, that is the saddest thing you could ever hear, right? Especially if you were under a deception that you did know him. Imagine seeing him on that final day. And him saying, I never knew you, depart from me. That is the scariest thing. I would not want that for my worst enemy. I would not want that for any of you in here or anyone who's watching this live stream somehow. 
And so the implied question of this passage, again, is what sort of house are you? Which house are you? If you want to know a good indication of the kind of house you are, you can get a good idea by how you respond to the many flash floods of your life. Let me say that again. If you want to know a good indication of what kind of foundation you truly have and where you will stand on the last day, you look at how you respond in the daily flash floods of your life. How do you respond when someone wrongs you? Are you merciful? Do you love them? What do you do when you're stressed? Do you run to substances or numb your mind with media? When the Bible calls you to lay something down and maybe your community has challenged you and calling you out, do you dig down deep and double up, commit yourself to that very thing that God is calling you to let go? See, these little mini things are not unimportant. They give you indications of where your heart lies. If you want to know if Jesus is Lord, you ask yourself, is he Lord in the little things? See, how you respond to Jesus in the little things tells you everything about the big things. I shared earlier this famous saying that if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord, what's the word? At all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So another way to identify what kind of house you are to see if there's any areas of your life that are out of bounds for Jesus. Any areas that you said, eh, can't go there. Everything else you can have. I surrender most, right? Like you give him most, but not that. I had a professor in Bible college who drew on the whiteboard this chart that's going to go up on the screen right now, right now. There it is. And he put on the chart and he said, where does the king not reign or something like that? And so I'm just saying in our own words for this, this passage, where in your life is the Lord not Lord? Where in your life is the Lord not Lord? And I try to list a, a number of spheres and areas in our life that all of us struggle with at different levels to give to Jesus. Our money and our possessions, that's a, that's a big one Jesus talks about a lot. Our free time, our romantic life, our relationships, our family, our emotions, our entertainment, our careers, our schools, our dreams, where we live, all these different things are all ones that we struggle with. Letting Jesus be Lord. Here's a big one. Politics. Our friendships. Where, church, in your life is the Lord not Lord? Is there any squares on that list that you have a invisible red shade over? That you've never said it out loud, but maybe you've said it in your heart. That this is an area that Jesus can't touch. You can have it all, except that. And do not be a fool. You cannot set apart an area in your life from Jesus and not let that area eventually mutate and spread to every other area of your life. Sin always spreads. It cannot be contained. It is either killed or, is it, or it's fed. Neutral stance towards sin in any area of your life, any area that is unsurrendered will ultimately overwhelm you and infiltrate every other area of your life. You cannot segment it. It always bleeds. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, church. 
But I have great news for all of us. Always got to have good news because this is, this is all about good news. And here's this. Jesus is not like the lords of the world. He's not like the lords of the world that lord over people, use people for their own gain, and then this, this, uh, just throws them out and spits them out when they're no longer useful for them. Jesus is not like the Lord who sits back on the easy chair, has no idea what the average worker does or the average subject has experience and just say, hey, let me just do this. Or here, here's a command I have known nothing about. What does Jesus do? He comes and meets us where we're at. He is not like the lords of the earth. He comes and takes on our pain, our suffering, our poverty, our lifestyle, our brokenness. He enters, he takes on flesh. He for the first time ever, can experience pain and loneliness and rejection. He puts himself in our place. He becomes as we are so that we might become what he is. This is the Lord that I can submit to and I can love and trust. Isn't it beautiful? Amen. Out of the mouth of babes. This is the, the, the Lord that lived the life of a servant. He died the death, not of a Lord in an honorable way, but died the death of a criminal, despised and rejected. He did this for his subjects so that we may be forgiven of our trespasses, and he became what we are so that we can be what he is and receive all that he has. And not only does he forgive us of our debts, he adopts us into his family as co-heirs. And not only does he do that, he gives us his mighty Holy Spirit so we can live like he does and give up all the areas that are so hard to give to Jesus sometimes. He gives us a spirit. He doesn't just say, hey, give that up to me. I know it will kill you and it's excruciating, but just do it. No, he gives us his spirit. He first models it by living the life that we could never live, never doing wrong and always doing right. And he also gives us a spirit so we can follow his example. And then when Jesus returns, we'll get to be with him forever. And reign as one happy family. This is the Lord that I submit to. And if you struggle submitting to him, how can you not submit to a Lord like this? So if there are any areas in your life that you're struggling to give to him and trust him, today's the day. But also remember this. You're ultimately not going to be judged by how faithful you are to him, but how faithful Jesus is to you. See, your life of daily repentance and surrender is not what saves you. But it's just evidence of Jesus truly being your Lord and Savior. So don't get this business that, oh, I need to do this so that God would love me. No, he already loves you. He already accepts you. But if you reject his lordship here, and you consistently do that over seasons, when you have knowledge of it from his word, and I'm telling you right now, then that's going to show you that he's not really your Savior. Because if he's not truly Lord, he's not truly Savior. And if he's not truly Savior, he can't be Lord. See, they can't be divided. You can only be one of his subjects if you go through the way of the Savior. And you can only be a part of and one with the Savior if he's your Lord. They're one and the same. They're together. You can't divide it. This is hard to, to grasp, but it's, it's a, this distinction is everything. And so let me ask you this question again. What kind of house are you? Are you the house that it's putting all of its hope and all of its trust in the rock that is Jesus? Or are you the house that is just playing lip service to Jesus and you're building a foundation on yourself 
because when the flood comes, that will be shamed very clearly. So if you need to turn from your own lordship, maybe for your first time, and surrender to Jesus, you can do that today. He wants to receive you. He's a good king. Such a good king, he dies for his own subjects. He dies for his own, the own rebels that are trying to dethrone him. You can have him. Come talk with a member. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow him and receive his grace. And maybe you've received his grace, but you've kind of slowly let an area of your kingdom, the kingdom of your heart, be off limits to Jesus. And I suspect that probably a lot of us have that. I don't say that in a condemning way, but a loving, shepherding way. If you have an area in your life that Jesus is not king, guess what? He already knows. He's not like, what? He knows because you've already said no to him. So come to him today. Give it to him. Confess that to a brother or sister in Christ today. Say, this is an area that I cannot give up. Please pray for me that I can give up. Or you can say, I'm giving this up to Jesus in Jesus' name, even though it's going to kill me. So let me close with this. Simply put, this passage teaches if you, if Jesus is your Lord, you do what he says. Those who do what he says, Jesus is Lord. You can't get that twisted. And as God builds you into a house, as you put your foundation on Christ, you will be able to withstand anything and nothing will shake you. You may creak, you may struggle, you may want to break, but ultimately Jesus will hold you still and keep you. And we're going through some serious storms in our society. We're going through some serious trauma in our city. And Jesus is our only hope to keep us steady. And so if you're not putting your hope and trust, do it today, please. He will keep you, not just today or tomorrow, but until the last day when you will joyfully be accepted into heaven and be with him forever. And when heaven comes down and rains and makes all things new. And on that day, there will never be another storm. Never will be another suffering. Amen.